and you're listening to a sermon from Bent Tree Church in Loveland, Colorado. For more information about Bent Tree, visit BentTreeChurch.com. Well, good morning, Bent Tree Church. It's good to see you guys here. I love your faces. Love my church family. For you visitors, so glad that you are here as well. Uh, my name's Paul, and I'm one of the pastors here. So glad you could make it in these crazy times we live in. Uh, I, it's good to be in the house of God today. Amen? To hear worship together, to hear our voices lifted, to hear God's word preached, to experience just the what we call the ordinary means of grace. Just week in, week out, God pouring out his grace on us. Uh, it, let's get our Bibles out. Let's get ready to study. Maybe something to take notes with. Uh, can I just say, if you're new to the whole Bible study thing or listening to sermons things, let me give you just kind of a, a tip I wish I would have had when I was uh, younger. I could have taken advantage of. And uh, this works with any preacher. Uh, so uh, do this. Here's something. Take notes. Take notes. Write stuff down. You can write it in your Bible, write right in the margins or on another piece of paper, on a phone or something. You can use our notes app uh, that we have that has the Bible verses in it. Here's the secret of taking notes. Do it like when I end today that you had to get up and, and lead a discussion about what I just talked about. That you would be competent enough to do that. I promise you it will make Scripture come alive for you. Here's another thing. I always thought when preachers went on, I was going, man, when will they ever land the plane? You know, like, you know, especially if they're boring and I couldn't stand boring preachers. Here's something that will make it never boring. Take notes. Take notes. I promise you it will make a difference. So one more thing, just kind of keep a constant prayer attitude open to God, like keep a line open to God. What does I mean by that is ask him questions as I preach. Ask him as you hear stuff and say, God, is this what your scripture is saying? Then look at your Bible. Uh, like pray, God, would you send your Holy Spirit right now? He's in you if you're a believer uh, and guide us in all truth that you have for us. That's what Jesus says in John sixteen thirteen. And to listen to me, listen, uh, as you listen to me, listen to what God is saying to you. Always measure my words by the ultimate authority, the Bible. Be like the Bereans, who when Paul preached to them, the, the apostle Paul, it says in Acts 17, 11, he said, they received the word with great eagerness examining the scriptures then daily to see whether these things were true. That's what you do. Powerful stuff if you'll put it in uh, to practice. Let's get started with a time of prayer, just repentance. Let's see, just use this time of prayer to get our hearts just kind of ready to hear from God. Sound good? Let's bow our heads. God, our Father in heaven, just hallowed be your name. Father, Thank you that we're able to come to you in prayer and worship with you, of you, God. It's all because of your grace that you have given to us this book and giving us your son to, to give us standing, even just to be able to pray right now. And Lord, we're all pretty messed up. We're all sinful and we're all wretched. We're not worthy. But God, according to your sovereign purpose, God, you have called us 
the believers in this room, those on the line right now, from spiritual death into spiritual life. God, you've loved us by sending your son Jesus to come. To come rescue us by taking our sins upon his back and giving us his righteousness. God, we just, we just take a moment just to confess our sins to you. You Christians in the house, you listening online right now as you pray. Is there anything you need to confess to God? Just maybe you've let creep in over this last week. I know I have. Confess it to God right now. Let's, let's clean house, clean our slate. Is it pride? Lust, envy? Here's one for me this last week, idolatry. How about lying or coveting other people's stuff or position in life? Are you holding some unforgiveness to, towards someone? Confess that now, right now. Anything that you, sin that you have in your life. Good news is there's grace greater than any sin. It's what the old hymn says. God, we lay our sins before you. Give us ears to hear your words. Give us, this, give us eyes to see your truth in Scripture. It's in the name of Jesus Christ. We all prayed and said, amen, amen. Well, let's get going, shall we? Last week, we got back into the swing of things in our series titled, So That You May Believe. If you're new to us, we're slowly working our way through the Gospel of John. That's a New Testament book about the, the life of Jesus. We're going verse by verse and just mining everything out of it that we can find. We're looking for all the gold out of that verse. And last week, we dove deep into chapter 4, at least the first part. And, and we saw in those first 14 verses this conversation that comes to be with Jesus with a woman just the two of them, and we know that woman only by calling her the woman at the well. We're picking it up there in the middle of the conversation today. It's just the two talking. It's fascinating. We see about her, about him. Let's remember back just a little bit our setting. Jesus and his disciples have just traveled through the hill country uh, in the north of Jerusalem, about 30 miles. They've tra uh, tracked through that stuff. They're on their way to Galilee. That's their home base, Galilee, their base of operations. It's noon. It's hot. Jesus sits down. He sends all the other dudes into town to buy food. Now, because Jesus is sitting there, he's worn out. He's thirsty. There's a woman that walks up. He asks her for a drink because she's got stuff to get a drink out of this well. She can dip down into the well. He apparently doesn't have anything. She apparently has this bucket. Some kind of clay pot or something, maybe a rope to let down into this well. It's called Jacob's Well, is the official name. It goes by a couple of names. This well, though, is special. It's not like a regular uh, well that kind of smells, tastes a little bit funny, like dirt or something. This one smells sweet, tastes sweet, it's fresh, it's cold. But you need a rope because it's at least 100 feet down from the surface. So he asks her for this drink. He says, can I have a drink? Now, this sets off this conversation we looked at last week. She is cold towards him. She's a porcupine, man. She's bristling at him. Jesus 
is just ask her for a drink. She just calls him out because he breaks all these social norms, if you will. He's obviously a Jewish man. She sees that right away from his dress, how he speaks, and she's a Samaritan woman. Jesus is breaking these social boundaries in a couple of other ways. Last week, we looked at the hatred between Jews and Samaritans. You remember that? They hated each other for generations. The first rule Jesus breaks is that he travels simply through Samaria. I mean, it was not even safe for a Jew to travel through Samaria. It says in verse 4, though, he had to travel through Samaria. Not because he was afraid of the Pharisees. Not because it was the shortest route. Because he had to have this particular well he had to be at. At this particular moment in time with this particular woman having this particular conversation. Second rule Jesus breaks is he had... To talk to a woman and she was not his family member. This was a big no-no. You didn't talk to someone that was not your mother, your sister, your daughter. And on top of that, she was a Samaritan woman. We'll see later on that she uh, was a woman of ill repute. He asked her to give him a drink from her bucket, which was another big social no-no. That's because since she was a Samaritan woman, popular Jewish thought at the time taught that Samaritans, anything that they touched, and then you touched it right after them, especially while they were still touching it, then you as a Jew would become ceremonially unclean, unable to go to the temple, unable to offer sacrifices or worship. That's not Scriptural law, it was just a man-made social norm that had grown out. Jesus breaks all these religious rules, doesn't he? Just walks right through because he's going to have this conversation with this woman at this well right at this time. It's an appointment he's going to keep. Now, maybe she objects because all these social rules are being broken. She clearly doesn't want to talk to him. We see that, don't we? But let's be honest. She's just irritated. Because Jesus is is intruding in her privacy. Perhaps the only time of the day she could be alone with her thoughts. Maybe be alone from the prying eyes and judgmental looks of other women. Because she has probably come to this well in the middle of the day. Because she doesn't want to see anybody else. That's why she's come now. Most people would have gotten their water earlier in the day. Or even in the evening before she comes in the middle of the day. Because she didn't want to see anybody. Jesus, on, over her objections, tells her, if you knew the gift of God, he's talking about himself, he's the gift God is giving to her, and he meet her, meets her at this well, and he says, I will give you living water. He says, if you knew the gift, you would ask me. Now, what's interesting, the locals would call this well, not just Jacob's well, they would call it the nickname, the living water well. That was literally its name. She thinks Jesus is talking about the water, but Jesus is talking about salvation and believing in him. He is the living water. He is the gift God has given. But she doesn't know that. She says, Jesus, you don't even have a bucket. She doesn't know his name. She, she just says, you don't even have a bucket. How are you going to give me living water when you can't even get water for yourself? Then she tries the race card. She basically insults that he's a Jewish man and makes the claim that her race is the true heir of uh, Abraham's race, Abraham's descendants. Let's pick it up there. If you're able, would you stand with me just in reverence as I read the word of God? I'll read our text out loud. You listen closely. Starting in chapter 4, verse 13. 
Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. Sir, the woman said to him, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water. Go call your husband, he told her, and come back here. I don't have a husband, she, she answered. You have said correctly, you have correctly said, I don't have a husband, Jesus said, for you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you said, have said is true. Sir, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus told her, Believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. The the woman said to Him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who who is called Christ. When He comes, He will explain everything to us. Jesus told her, I, the one speaking to you, am He. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. Here in verse 26, right at the end, we end up with Jesus simply revealing he is the Christ. He lays this profound truth. He's the long one the Jews would have called the the Messiah, promised from the Holy Scriptures. We'll definitely talk more about what what that means when we get there because it has huge, deep implications. And, And that kicks off a whole new section of Scripture. But let's go back to verse 13. Verse 13 says, Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. Referring to Jacob's well. Isn't it interesting that when the conversation started in verse 13, Jesus was the thirsty one physically. But by verse 26 in the conversation, the woman is the thirsty one just spiritually. She had thought he was talking about physical thirst and water. Well, he is for him. She's confused. That's why she asked him, how are you going to get this living water? It's deep and you don't have a bucket. You can't get it for yourself. How are you going to give it to me? No, 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 no. He's offering salvation to her. That's what he's talking about. And don't miss it. Not only is he offering forgiveness of her sins, but he's offering an eternal relationship with God. He is offering her a life that she can live in obedience, that glorifies God. He's offering her righteousness. And we're going to see in a few verses down in her life, it doesn't glorify God right now. In fact, that's the reason. She's getting water in the middle of the day. She is so ashamed of her life, she didn't want to see anyone. We'll get to that in a moment. For those of you reading through the Bible right now, Proud of you doing that, you'll notice that you've already run across a few verses uh, where the metaphor of water is life is. You've seen that, haven't you? 
Water is described as life in the Bible. It's used as a metaphor that has spiritual cleansing from sin. It's the picture of new life that comes from water given to the thirsty spiritually. Now back in the Old Testament, Israel, God's people, God's uh, Hebrew people had left God behind several times and he brings them back. Finally, he sells them off again as uh, these different groups come in, take them into captivity away. They had stopped following his commands. They were living in sin. They had turned their backs on God. And the Samaritans, and the, uh, certainly the Samaritans had left God following the trappings of religion, but so has the Israelites. God says this to his people through the prophet Jeremiah. This is the Old Testament. Jeremiah 2.13. God says, for my people have committed a double evil. Check it out. Two evils. Number one, they have abandoned me, the fountain of living water. See that? And dug cisterns for themselves. Second thing. Crack cisterns that cannot hold water. Now what is he talking about here? Cisterns are not wells. They're designed to catch rainfall. And when you, you run out of water, you run out of it. The problem is, if they crack at all, the water would just run out into the ground. They were lined with kind of a pitch. Water in them was often foul-smelling, tasting, like algae. God's point here in Jeremiah 2 is that these People were trying to find life in made-up religions and in sin away from God. He says, you're not going to find life there. He says, that's cracked. You won't find any water. He's saying, you're trying to find life in water that's not from God, but it won't work. Again, the prophet Jeremiah explains it this way in chapter 17. Verse 13, Lord, the word Jehovah is what this is. Or Yahweh, the hope of Israel. All who abandon you will be put to shame. All who turn away from me will be written in the dirt. For they have abandoned the Lord, the fountain of living water. All through God's word, the picture or the analogy of this water of life is this message that can be found. Let me, let me just give you a couple more and then we'll get back to this conversation with Jesus and this woman. Look at the prophet Isaiah. He shows what this fountain of life is actually used for. He tells the people what you do with the living water. He says in Isaiah chapter 1 verse 16. He says, wash yourselves. Cleanse yourselves. You got the picture? Wash yourselves. Cleanse yourselves. Take a bath, in other words, in this water. Remove your evil deeds from my sight. Stop doing evil. Learn to do what is good. Pursue justice. Now watch. You had to cleanse yourself first to do any of this stuff. He says, correct the oppressor. Defend the rights of the fatherless. Plead the widow's case. Come, let us settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are crimson red, they will be like wool. Oh, praise God for this. The best part of this water of this uh, water of life. It's free. In fact, you can't buy it. It cannot be purchased. We can't be good enough to get to God. God tells us people this in Isaiah chapter 55 verse 1. says, come everyone who is thirsty. Come to the water and you without silver, come 
buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without silver, without cost. Praise God. So we don't have anything to buy it with. He says it's free. Jesus pointed out this, this woman's spiritual thirst, didn't he? She is missing something in her. Jesus is offering this woman a way to satisfy what's missing in her soul, her spiritual thirst. He's offering eternal life to this woman, isn't he? He's offering himself the gift of God. Listen how he puts it in verse 14 of chapter 4, John. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water that I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. You see the words there? What he's meaning here is not only will this living water quench your thirst spiritually that you have, Jesus is saying that this living water from him will begin to be produced in you in such a way when you drink it that it will spill out into other people's lives. Another way to say it is that if you drink this living water that's produced in you by the Spirit of God to others, your life, your family, your friend, they'll be able to partake from this living water. You'll become life to them. Why? Because you'll have Jesus. You'll just be pouring Jesus out. By the way, we'll see this happen later in this chapter to this woman. Now watch. It's really not evident at first when you read this verse. But Jesus is actually, he's answering her insult from verse 11. She had just said back in verse 11, she said, our father Jacob, that's not her father. She's not a descendant of Jacob. She said, our father Jacob gave us this well. It's, it is living water. You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? You see the little jab there? Jacob was one of the twin sons of Isaac and Rachel the grandson of Abraham himself, Jacob, who God would renew his covenant through and change his name to what? Israel. She's saying, we're, we're a descendant of Jacob. Jacob, the one who had fathered 12 sons, who from those 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel would come from. Was Jacob due honor by the Jews and the Samaritans? Sure, sure. But Jesus simply answers her insult, her question, Sure, Jacob gives you this well to drink. But if you drink from it, you'll just be thirsty again. He doesn't offer you life. In other words, life doesn't come from who you're a descendant of. Nothing in this physical world can save you. Not your genes, not your DNA, not because your daddy was a preacher. Nothing can offer you life, purpose, and relationship like me, Jesus says. You got to drink from me. She's talking about physical thirst, but Jesus is saying, oh, sister, it is so much more than what you're thinking here. There's life in you that is missing. It's a hole. You need this life. You're thirsting for it. He says, I can give you that life you're looking for. This woman is so dry. Spiritually, she's dry. She's lost, dead in her sins. The woman's life has been dry, a dry thing that she cannot find life. I mean, she's tried to find it clearly in men. Belonging, it's like she is in a desert looking for a spring of living water. But what does she have to do to drink the spring? To drink from the fountain of life? Who is that, by the way? Jesus. <laughs> People are going, I think it's Jesus. <laughs> drink from that fountain of life. That's Jesus. All right, 
when she drinks from that fountain, what will happen? Well, here's a picture of it. Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3 and 4. You will joyfully, look at this, I love it, draw water from the springs of salvation. Is that cool or what? And on that day, you will say, give thanks to the Lord, proclaim his name, make his works known among the peoples, declare that his name is exalted. She'll do that later on, by the way. Now, don't miss this. The first step of drinking the water from the fountain of life will be believing Jesus is the Son of God. That will set off a lifetime of drinking that living water for her and being a spring for others. But she's not quite there yet. But Jesus has rattled her cage, hadn't he? She wants this living water. She's thirsty now. But she doesn't know what this living water is or where it is. So she says this in verse 15. Sir, the woman said to him, give me this living water so that I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water. She's still lost, isn't she? She didn't have any idea. She's ready for it. She wants it. She doesn't know what it is. But she doesn't know where to get it. There's no spiritual rebirth here. She has not been born again. There's no what we've called regeneration. She's still dead, but you're going to see that change in just a moment. What we're going to see is the actual point at which she's born again. That's why this story is so incredible. Now, what's the problem? Well, like all of us who are saved, who are in Christ Jesus, like this woman, we had to get to that point of facing two critical junctures before she could have the living water. We had to face this too. All right, please, please, please write this down. Two critical issues we face before we can be saved. Number one, the reality of our own sin that we still carry as guilt. I'll just take a little tea break while you write it down. We have to come to the reality of our own sin. We carry as guilt. It's on us. We did it. We carry the sin. We've got to come to terms with the guilt of our own sin. To go, yeah, we're guilty. It's the sin that separates us from God. Now, in people that have not been born again or unregenerated people, they can certainly realize that they're guilty of sin. You don't have to be a Christian to realize you're screwed up. The world knows they're screwed up. They just don't know what to do about it. But will they connect, if they're not a Christian, will they connect with that with the biblical concept of sin? I I don't think so. Not until they are born again will they realize how awful their sin really is against the very character of a holy God who created them. That their very breath comes from. One of the ways you can begin to tell if you've been born again, you want to know, is to understand that your guilt, your sin is a debt. Listen, you cannot pay any way possible. You begin to see how, sorry, just it gets me, you begin to see how awful your own sin is in the sight of God. In fact, the more you mature, and the more you grow in your spiritual life in Christ as a Christian, the effects, one of them, is that although you know beyond a shadow of your, a doubt that you're saved, your sin is forgiven at the cross of Christ, 
you begin to look back on your old sin and you mourn it even more. You begin to understand the gravity of how evil you have been. In the past, you go, yeah, it's evil. You go, oh, no, I didn't know how black it was. I didn't know how awful it was. And that mourning of your sin, even though you know it was forgiven by Christ, it produces even a greater greater thankfulness to God for your soul, for Jesus is purchasing you out of guilt. It gives you even more of a love for Christ. Jesus, that he would see you while you were in your sin, while you're ready to spit in his face and go, I don't care who you are. And he goes, I'll die for him. That's number one. A person comes first to the reality that their own sin, that they carry as guilt. They come to understand it. Now look at the second thing this woman or any person has to come to grip with. If you're a Christian, you have to come to grips with this. Two critical issues we face before we can be saved. Number two, the identity and recognition of Jesus as the only one that can save us from the guilt of our sin. The identity and recognition of Jesus as the only one that can save us from the guilt of our sin. You simply cannot save yourself and no one else can save you. Okay, How does that result in how we live? Our repentance. We begin to turn from our spiritual, our selfish, uh, I'm sorry, sinful and selfish way of doing life. We turn towards obedience and following the commands of Jesus, right? The more complete definition of repentance is this. Repentance is a change of heart and mind resulting in a change of behavior. It's literally... I'm walking this way, and I realize I'm walking the wrong way, so I'm going to walk this way. Get this down. Repentance, a change of heart and mind resulting in a change of behavior. Now, don't misunderstand here. Repentance comes at the time of salvation, but what comes first is regeneration. Being born again, born from above, Jesus called it, then faith, then repentance. Think about it this way. If you agree with that, our change of mind about who Jesus is as Savior and Lord, that results in our first profession that he is my Savior. That right there, listen, is the very first act of repentance. You see what I mean? Because in the past you said, I didn't believe Jesus was the Son of God. I repent of that wrong thinking. Now repent of that sin and turn to Jesus. He is the Son of God. Jesus is about to address both these issues so that she can drink from the fountain of living water. She has just said, give me this water so I don't have to come here and draw water anymore. Watch how Jesus addresses her first critical issue she faces. Remember that uh, is the guilt of her sin. Number one, she has to be aware of her guilt before God. So Jesus says in verse 18, go and call your husband, he told her, and come back here. She says, I don't have a husband, she answered. You have correctly said, I don't have a husband, Jesus, Jesus said. For you have had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Ooh, ooh, this is painful. It's awkward. Jesus just lays all her sin right out there. Notice in verse 17 when she answers, 
I, 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 don't, I don't have a husband. This is the kind of thing politicians do. They're famous for it. Answering with a half-truth, which is just a really another way of saying a lie. She's trying to block him by giving him some truth. She doesn't want him to know about her deeper sin. Because she is ashamed of her sin, but he knows it all. Now, we saw human nature of Jesus in him being tired and thirsty as a result of his, uh, of his hike. You remember, he sits down, he's thirsty. That's his human nature. But now we see his God nature showing through. Let's think about this for just a moment. Go with me. This is going to take your, your thinking cap, so hang with me. There are some times like this in Jesus' earthly ministry showing his God nature. He sees clearly into this woman's past. And apparently he's right. He nails it. But then there are other times in all four accounts of the gospel story that tend to show that Jesus, as he walked in his earthly flesh, didn't know everything all the time. Now, how do we account for that? Now, this is important. While we believe that Jesus is truly God and truly man, we also distinguish between his divine nature and his human nature without separating them. This is important. While we believe that Jesus is truly God and truly man, we also distinguish between his divine nature and his human nature without separating them. It's a mystery for sure. I don't know if we'll understand this on this side of heaven. I doubt it. And maybe not there either. This is a deep thing of God. What we're seeing here is that there are some divine attributes Jesus has that don't communicate to his human nature, at least while he was on the earth. For instance, omniscience, knowing everything. Sometimes we, he knows stuff, like this woman's history, or Nathaniel. You remember, Nathaniel, I saw you sitting under a tree. In his human nature, that implies he has omniscience right there. He has it. Other times, most notably, when he doesn't know the day and the hour of his return, he says that's only for the Father. Now, I think he knows that now. That's personal. So how does he know things that imply he, he is omniscient? How does he know things? Here it is. Because in his humanity, he is perfectly in communion with the Holy Spirit who is whispering in his ear constantly. He's in constant communication. This is important to understand because this is the Trinity, the Godhead at work. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit speaking to him. Now, we say God is omniscient, all-knowing. Now, a break here. Look at your own life for a moment. Are there some things you would rather all of us not know about you? What if I just suddenly got the file on you and I just started reading it? Be pretty uncomfortable, wouldn't it? What about the things you haven't done? Oh, but you've thought about in detail. Be pretty uncomfortable. Hello? Just like this woman, Jesus knows all things about you. Do you hear me? He knows all things about you. Nothing is hidden from Jesus about you. Even your thoughts. Okay, back to this woman. This woman's first problem is she has the guilt of her sin. Sin stands in her way of receiving this water, this uh, gift of life Jesus has just described. Now, I don't think she knows 
This is the problem yet. Maybe she does. I don't know. But Jesus just brought her sin out. So she knows, he knows, and she knows it's a problem. Now, why is it so important? Because, look, salvation cannot be found without repentance. Salvation cannot be found without repentance. Folks, this is an incredibly unpopular thing to say. Now, why do we say this here? Isn't repentance a result of being born again? All you reformed dudes, aren't you saying that? So if you don't have repentance, even if someone claims to be born again, then you don't really have salvation either. Don't forget what we've already talked about earlier with regeneration, being born Given faith first. Remember regeneration. Being born again. Being given faith by God to believe in Jesus as Savior is so closely joined with repentance. It's like they're, they're two sides of the same coin. You with me? They cannot be separated. We don't repent to be born again. We repent because we have been born again. Do you see? This is important. This is important. It's why the, the Roman Catholic Church has it completely backwards and upside down. They go, oh, we got to earn our salvation. Wrong. Repentance, that is acceptable and pleasing to God, is evidence of our salvation, not the cause of it. The woman at the well has clearly never repented of her sin. In fact, she has gone from one sin to the next to the next, deeper and deeper. It's just piling up. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, your sin piles up. It's a deeper debt. Although it may seem harsh of Jesus to point out her sin, it's really the most loving thing he could do at this moment. To point her sin out. And go, you're evil. You see, although she is sinful, she's not ready to face how bad her sin really is in the sight of God. Jesus has just exposed her sin though, hasn't he? He wants her to repent of it, to turn from it. What's so amazing about Jesus' offer of salvation is that in his divinity, Jesus knows the truth about us. Every tiny, little tiny sin to the big, nasty ones, you're just trembling at remembering. He knows every thought. Check this out. He even knows sins that you've forgotten about. And check this out too. Jesus doesn't come just to forgive sin so that we can go on and then keep sinning. That's not how it works. No, you remember back in the gift, the series we did right at Christmas in Romans 6, when the Apostle Paul asked the rhetorical question, he says, should we go on and sin because we're not under the law anymore but under grace? He answers, absolutely not. Our repentance is to lead us to be like Jesus in his holiness, not less like him. Look at how the Apostle Paul puts it this way. Titus chapter 2, verse 14. He, Jesus, gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. He gives us himself to take our sin to redeem us back to God so that we don't have to sin anymore. So that we are clean before God. But what's the purpose of being clean before God? It says, 
He wants a people for himself. He says, you're mine, you're mine, you're mine, you're mine. I want a people, people that will be eager to do good works, that will live ever-increasing holy lives to be more conformed to the image of Christ, lives that will bring him glory in how we live and love other people. Now, how does this woman respond to Jesus? Look at verse 19. Sir, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. What does she do? She changes the subject. Or so it seems on the surface. Isn't it what we do when we're confronted with our sin? We try to do a misconception on God, like somehow he hasn't what he seen what he's obviously seen. We go, Hey, God, look, a bear. You know, we, we like run like God doesn't see it. By the way, in a situation like this, don't you just want to be a Jedi Knight? Like have mind control. Like be like Obi-Wan Kenobi. Say, these are not the droids you're looking for. I want that. But here, Jesus doesn't follow. He doesn't fall for even Jedi tricks. On the surface, it seems like she is trying to throw Jesus off the subject of her guilt. Maybe. But what I also think may be happening here is that she is turning to what the world says will remove her guilt of sin. She turns the focus on religion. Mankind, since the fall into sin, has tried to reinvent religions to get to places. Just do this thing, worship this thing in this place, do this to get to God. By the way, it's never a good idea to debate with Jesus on theology. He's going to win every time. Since she now thinks Jesus is some kind of prophet from God, she wants to get down to the bottom of a century-old religious debate between Jews and Samaritans about how to find God, how to worship him, how to get to heaven, how to get your sins taken care of. Look at her statement again. She says, our ancestors worshiped on this mountain. She could see the mountain literally from there. But you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem, on Mount Zion. All of her life, the Samaritan priest had said, if you want to find God, well, then you're going to have to find the right place on this mountaintop. And if you worship him in just the right way, do the right dance and do all this stuff and sing the right songs, then you can get to heaven. The Samaritans, they only accepted the first five books of, uh, of Scripture. We call that the Pentateuch. So they worshiped where Abraham had been building an ark on the mountain, Mount Gerizim. But the Jews had the entire scriptures, remember? Up to that point, at least. They understood that God had chosen Jerusalem as the correct place for God to be worshiped. The Jews claimed that place is the temple in Jerusalem on Mount Zion. The Samaritan priest had said, look, you could go worship on Mount Gerizim in Samaria. That'll get you there. The Jews had said, no, 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 Jerusalem. So she's asking Jesus, since you're clearly a prophet and you're clearly uh, from God and you know all my sin now, what's the right answer? Where do I go to get my sins forgiven? You see the, the question she's asking? She's asking this question because she understands now her need for forgiveness. Number one is down. 
She has a spiritual thirst. She's going, I've got sin. I'm guilty. Write this down. Write this down. Please get this. Until you realize you're sinful and facing hell and separation from God, you don't want a savior. I'll just let that hang. Until you realize you are sinful and facing hell and separation from God, you don't want a savior. She's crying out to Jesus. She said, tell me, tell me where I can get my guilt taken away. Tell me where I can quench this thirst. It's on this mountain or is it on this mountain? I'll do it. Then look in verse 21. Jesus told her, believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. In other words, the answer is neither one. Jesus says the answer that you're wanting is irrelevant. Because it's not a where, it's a who. Because a new age has come, Jesus said. No longer do you have to try to get to God by sacrificing animals on a mountaintop. Now God has come to you. Watch how he sets her straight on the Jews versus the Samaritans issue though. He says this in verse 22. He says, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. He's telling her, your religion was only a a vague shadow of the truth. The Jews, they have the real answer. Salvation is from the Jews, he says. Now what did Jesus mean by that? Namely, That the Messiah, the Christ, would come through the Jewish people. He would be born from their lineage. And he had been born. But then watch what he tells her next. Verse 23. But an hour is coming. Oh, I love this. And it's now here. In other words, I'm standing here, baby. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. Watch Jesus is foreshadowing his own death and resurrection once again to tell the new age is coming and it's already here. It's standing in front of you. And it won't be your DNA. It won't be your bloodline that proves that you're God's people. It will be true worshipers who worship the Father in spirit and truth. It won't be because your daddy was a pastor you get into heaven. Come on. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him who will worship in spirit and truth. He says, worship in spirit and truth. Now, what does that mean? Well, think of it this way. If before we receive Christ, Jesus, we are spiritually dead, Ephesians 1 says, alienated from a holy God because of the guilt of our sin, he's saying to drink this living water that he offers that brings life it will revive you from spiritual death and give you spiritual life in Christ Jesus like what he had told Nicodemus the old Pharisee remember in our last story he says you must be born what again born from above born from heaven not born into sin you're in sin already he says you've got to be reborn do you see that Look what he says in verse 24. God is spirit and those who worship in spirit must worship in in spirit and in truth. In other words, there is no other way to get to God on this earth if you were just a physical person. Why? Because you're dead. You're cut off. There's just simply no way to get there. 
Jesus says, you must be born again. Born from the Spirit. Oh, this, this leaves this woman dealing with the first problem solved. She knows she's guilty. She knows she's on her way to hell. She's confessed her sin. She is, she's owned her sin. She has a, in a sense said, well, you're right, Jesus. I'm a sinful person. And I need a way to get to God. But now she faces a new question. Well, then, who is the Savior if it's not one of these mountains where I've got to, if it's not a where, who? She's saying, if it's not a place I go, Jesus, it's, if it's not a thing I do, then who can, who can save me? And right there, she says in verse 25, she asks it. This shows this little faith this little lady has. Look, she says, the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. She's waiting on the Messiah. And, and it's right there. That Jesus claims to be the Messiah, the Christ. That's huge. He says this in verse 26. Capture this, by the way. Jesus told her, I, comma, the one speaking to you, comma, am he. Now we could stop and we could preach a series right here. I'm not lying. And you know I could do it. You'll notice in other places in the Gospels when Jesus is asked if he's the Messiah. Have you ever wondered why sometimes the answer is this kind of roundabout way? Well, you know, like you said so. And, and you're like, Jesus, just say, yeah. He's not answering a roundabout way here, is he? Because in Jerusalem, think about it. Every time people are starting to figure out that Jesus might be the Christ, the religious leaders, they try to kill him. Remember talking about, he goes down to Jerusalem, pokes the bear, right? <laughs> so there he's, he's like going, he says, don't, he, even they, they say, well, you're the Christ. He goes, yeah, keep quiet about it right now. He knows it's not the time. Like in Jerusalem, when, when he cleared out the temple, you remember that? And, and people are ready to make him king by force. But it wasn't time yet and where most people thought being the Messiah meant throwing off political rule of the Romans and coming in to be the king by force, being a great military leader. So when Jesus is in Jerusalem, he doesn't tell people that he's Messiah. But here, in this open field with just this woman and him, Jesus just flat out says, I'm the Messiah. I'm the Christ. That's me. You remember... Back in chapter 2, when they were trying to make him king, he says he knows in their heart. He, he, he knew him to not trust himself to them. He knows their heart. He's looking at her heart now. I don't want you to miss this. Right here. She's been born again. Right there. Right there. She's been regenerated. We'll see it clearly in verses coming up. We'll see evidence of it. She's been given new life. Not because she's good enough. Lord knows she's not good enough. She believes Jesus who he says he is, the Christ, the promised one. But it's right here that I want to give you this simple yet profound thought. You ready for it? Do you remember in the Old Testament when Moses is shepherding a sheep and he sees that burning bush and he goes near and God speaks from the bush. He says, take off your sandals, this is holy ground. Remember that, Exodus he says, I want you, Moses, to lead my people, the Hebrews, out of slavery in Egypt. And so 
good conversation. Read it. Some of you just have reading through the Bible. Moses asked God. He says, um, who do I tell the Hebrew people you are? Like, what's your name? And God says in Exodus 3.14, he says this. God replied to Moses, I am who I am. You got it? This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now look back at your verse, John 4, 26, one more time. What does Jesus say his identity is to this woman? Jesus told her, I, comma, the one speaking to you, comma, am he. You take out that phrase for just a moment, the one speaking to you, am he. That is added to the Greek there, so you'll understand it for you to make sense. You want to know what it says? Jesus told her, I am. I am. I'm God. The great I am is speaking to you right now. That's an incredible thought, isn't it? Calling her to life. The son of God. I am. The whole conversation, she's been standing there talking to God, the son. But what is no less amazing than that is that the great I am has been speaking to you this whole time today. God the Father, no joke, no joke. God the Father is calling you to life in the sacrifice of his son. The third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, is whispering in your ear, ear, calling you to life. Let me ask you, is God the Spirit speaking to you right now? Is he calling you to life within himself? Is he calling you, regenerating you, calling you to life in Christ, a relationship with Jesus? If so, Hebrews chapter 4 verse 7 says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Simply receive the gift of faith that he offers in himself. Believe that he is who he says he is, the son of a living God. Let's pray. God, we're just just so blown away when we hear the depth of this meaning of this conversation of Jesus being the great I am, the, the son of the living God. We just, and to hear about how our sin separates us, God. Huh? But that you have called us to life, not because I somehow magically figured it out, and, but you have called me and the believers listening right now. As you just continue to pray, if you're not a Christian or you're not sure you're a Christian, look up here, look at me. The whole thing with Jesus' offer is this. He's saying, to believe in me is to be regenerated. The very first thing you do to repent of your sin is simply to believe in him. Up to this point, you haven't believed. If you believe, you've been given faith. You tracking? Now here's the thing. 
You didn't do anything to earn it. And you're still really messed up. You've just been forgiven of all your mess ups. But your sin has been cleaned away. So when God looks at you, you know what he sees? Only the righteousness of Jesus now. Because you believe. And you remember I said there's, God is a trinity. One God yet existing in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God called you to himself. Jesus made it possible for you to come to him by his death and resurrection. And then third, the Holy Spirit. What's he do? Well, that, my friend, he has just been calling you to life, giving you life. Right now, I, I know it doesn't probably feel like it. But the Holy Spirit is living in you if you believe Jesus is the Son of God. And like I said, you, you're still pretty messed up, although forgiven. I mean, you still want to do those sins you've always done. Your body's used to it. I mean, if you look at porn, you still want to look at porn. You, 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 you steal, you still want to steal. But Jesus is saying, look, I want to recreate you. The Spirit is in you. He's going to recreate you. He's going to make you new. The, the way the Bible says it is you are going to be conformed into the image of Christ. As you live life, you're still going to sin here and there. Repent of those sins. You, you heard me lead Christians in that as we started our time today. But know your sin is forgiven. Past, present, even future sin. Now try to live holy lives. But here's the next thing you do. Is confess that Jesus is the Son of God. To somebody. Tell people. February 15th. Be an excellent time. We're having a baptism service. We'll have a tank down here. If you've never seen one. You literally get in the tank full of water. And I'll ask you a question. I'll say, do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? And you'll say, yeah. I'll say, do you believe his death on the cross has paid for your sins, past, present, and future? And you'll say, yeah. And then we do this beautiful thing. The thing doesn't save you. It's a declaration of what you believe. It's a demonstration of what you believe. I'll take you and I'll lean you back and I'll shove you down under the water. And it's like the old you, the sinful you is dead. It was crucified with Jesus. So we bury that old dead body. And then when I raise you back up, it's like you are a new person. You've been raised to walk in the newness of life. New mind, new heart, new way to feel, new way to act. You say, I stand with Jesus. But that's the time you do it, February 13th. It's the next time. So if that's you, if you've become a Christian, you've prayed that, you say, I believe, end your prayer like this. God, I want to follow you. And I don't know all the stuff I got to do, but show me. Thank you for saving me. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Would you stand with me and sing with me? Thanks for listening to this sermon from Bentry Church. To get connected at Bentry and for more information, please visit BentryChurch.com.